hey, welcome to the Backyard Professor Live Sunday Night Fireside Library Hour. Since this is being recorded, I'm going to start a few minutes early and just basically give people a chance to come in before I review what I talked about two weeks ago. And then I give you the lowdown skinny on the information. Further information on the Joseph Smith papyri. Looks like five people have joined. Welcome, you guys. I'm just now introducing. I'm basically chatting for about the first 10 minutes. I'm coming on early uh, so that I knew I would be able to be live because of the fiasco of last week. Thanks for hanging in there with me from last week. Hey, all you guys. Good evening, good sir. Mike Weiss, good to see you. Mo, woohoo! Yeah, here we are. Tim Rathbone, welcome all of you. Every one of you. Uh, I started a little early. I just wanted to make sure I gave myself time to get on. Uh, last week wasn't very good, but I know people watching this video are going to say, oh, no, he's going to repeat himself all night again. No, I'm not. Uh, I have a boatload of information, and I am going to get right on it. I will outline what I'm going to do tonight, and then I'm going to stick with that outline, and we are going to have fun, and I am going to show you guys some spectacular information tonight. I'm really excited, so it's going to be fun. London, good to see you. Or Landon, sorry. Oh, thank you, Tim. Yeah, my garage band piece. I have a whole boatload to send you, too. I did a new song today. So, anyway, hey, Ford and Gamsey, good to meet you. Uh, I'm a couple minutes early. <clears throat> I'm going to go for a few minutes and then we'll, we'll round up. Looks like there's a few of you. Oh, someone said they liked this already. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> uh, I am going to proceed. Two weeks ago, I discussed the relationship with uh, the Book of Abraham and the Book of Breathings. I will briefly review that tonight, and then we will move forward. There is a lot of material to share. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, I, uh, I just got my garage band with my Mac, and I'm learning how to use it, and I'm learning how to play music and do music, and I am having an absolute ball with it. I really am. It's a, a lot of fun to do. So, very enjoyable material. So, it looks like we've got 13 people here. We will, yeah, it's, uh, oh, it's about 5'2". Not bad. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're in good shape here. Um, I'll let I'll let about twenty people get here, and then we will start. Folks who are watching this as a video, you can skip the first five or six minutes. We're just going to chat. I'm basically just yammering until everyone gets here. I had electronic troubles last week, uh, and I did not get to give the live show presentation I wanted to, but I'll do it now. So this week. But we had a great chat. I I finally figured it out. And after two hours, I came back. And man, there were like 
65 people that jumped on. It was pretty awesome. It was a lot of fun. We talked about a little bit of everything. Every now and then, you got to have those kind of chats, don't you? I mean, just, you know, get friends together and gab and blab. So I even uh, signed up for Zoom this week. So I think I'll learn how to host a Zoom meeting and maybe I can start doing a few Zoom meetings with, I think it lets me do 10 people. I'm not sure, but uh, I'll let you know, and then we can all swap emails and get some Zoom fun going. That would be cooler than I'll get out. Yeah. Teresa Pittman, welcome. Glad you're here. Huff Daddy, hey, how are you, man? Doug Vincent, how are you? Thank you for all your help last week, Doug. I appreciate it. It was your email that helped me solve my problem, so thank you very much. We had a heck of a discussion afterward. Sorry, some of you missed it, but uh, we had fun. You can watch the video. The video is really good, actually. But we talked a little bit about everything. And then I, I showed off some of my art and some of my welding art and my oil paintings. You know, it's kind of a show and tell situation. And it was a boatload of fun. So it was a hoot to do. Yeah. Uh-oh. I cats make your computer crap out. Oh no, Huff Daddy, cast Satan out for me, would you? Yeah. Hey, Marco F, welcome. And thank you. Yeah, yeah. The scrolls art was I'd done that for 15 years. That was that was spectacular. So, well, we've got a pretty good group uh, for a start. Why don't I? Oh, I told everybody six o'clock, you know, I'm getting anxious because I don't want people to uh, start the video and then say, oh, all he's going to do is yammer about a bunch of nothing anyway. Although it isn't about a bunch of nothing. I'm yammering with my favorite audience and good friends on YouTube. So that's how that works. Or on live, I should say. So you guys are the best. Daisy B, good evening. Welcome. Yeah, we're getting a few people here. Excellent. Yeah, Zoom will be cool, Mo. I think we'll do some Zoom too. That's that's uh, that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> yes, if if all else fails, if if you can't fix your computer by picking it up and dropping it on the floor, then have an elder anoint it with the oil. That'll work. <laughs> Huff, Daddy, you cracked me up. All right. Hope everyone had a good week. I had a good week. Uh, I've got a lot done. I got a lot of reading done. I've got a lot of music making done. I uh, have my garage band and I'm starting to make some music. I'm going to uh, find a site where I can put my music and then I'll send you links. I am a second host or a secondary person using this StreamYard on Mormon Discussions Inc. So I don't think I have as many options to put cool stuff up and links and all. I think they only allow two and, and I'm the second one. So that's why I just do live. And that's why I show you, you know, stuff on the, on the camera and all, because I, I don't know if I can do links or not, but uh, it's okay. I'll get my message across one way or the other. We will make this work. Hey, Mark Crispin. Good to see you. Yeah, GarageBand is amazing. I sent a couple of you a few of the songs. I've got like 14 songs. I just wrote a new one today. So, and I'm working on a new blues, jazz type song that's going to be fun. 
rock and roll organ in it and all that. So, okay, 20 people. Oh, two of you have left. I can't blame you. <laughs> okay, let's get this show on the road, shall we? I'm going to go ahead and start, and then those who come in late, they can just watch the video and and uh, catch up on the first 10 minutes. So we're going to, we're going to form Paul Osborne is the live stream. Yes, this is the live stream. Welcome Paul Osborne. I have been waiting just for thee. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. That's a good program right there. I don't care who you are. That's a good program. Well, now that Paul Osborne's here, we can all get going. Dan Vogel, has he showed up yet? Has RFM showed up? They'll probably walk in late. You know, that's what they did when they were Mormons. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. I'm going to go ahead and start. We've got 21 of us. Let's see what happens when I, uh... oh, Dan Vogel. Thanks to Brent. Yes, thanks to Brent. Welcome, Dan. I, I'm just getting started. I got on early just to make sure I had all my technical glitches worked out, and I do. So now that all of you wonderful people are here, uh, Mark and Tim and all of you, Landon, Daisy B, all of you, yeah. Who's saying the opening prayer? Oh, uh, one of you guys do it because I'm going to go ahead and start anyway. So if I interrupt the prayer, I apologize for the inconvenience I might cause for ceasing the downflow of blessings from on high. But that's just tough toodles. We have to get going. I have a boatload of information to share with you. So let's do this formally. Here we go. Uh, yeah, seven, six o'clock. Let's go. Marco F. Here we go. So, two weeks ago, I talked about the relationship of the Book of Breathings with the Book of Abraham. I want to just briefly, and I mean too briefly, summarize all of the materials that I shared with you on that. I'm only going to take just a couple of minutes, and then I will get on the four points I want to make tonight that I will share with you. The first thing I showed well, maybe not the first, but I, I may not be taking this in order, but I am going to summarize the evidence so far that we have with the papyri linking with, hey, Ryan Larson, welcome, my friend. Good to see you here. I just started. I'm just starting. I'm going to review everything right now So from two weeks ago, and then I'm going to get going. So I got on early. Okay. Facsimile number one and three was taken from the book of Abraham. And I emphasize that that is Joseph Smith's uh, comment, not the modern churches. That is how he described it. And I showed you the times and seasons pictures of all three facsimiles being claimed to come from the book of Abraham. Hey, Arcady, welcome. And so we've got that established. And that is the book of breathings because both facsimile one and three were part of the same role. As the book of breathings was created, the art was also created with it in one papyrus. So that was one thing I noticed, mentioned, uh, the facsimile number one fibers on the one side where it was cut off from the roll definitely match the fibers, and I'll show you this, they definitely match the fibers. On this side, it was cut off. 
the fibers on this side of facsimile number one. You can see it's damaged, but we do have this facsimile now. It came back in 1967. They match the Book of Breathings fibers so that we know facsimile number one belonged on the Book of Breathings. No question. The hieroglyphs of facsimile number one on this side of the facsimile, they didn't print these in the uh, Book of Abraham. What they did is they cut off the facsimile number one from this edge. But these hieroglyphs here, they use to help create their alphabet and grammar. That's another bullet point that I mentioned two weeks ago. So, and... <clears throat> while it was written by his own hand upon papyrus. Another bullet point I wanted to make is Joseph Smith pointed out the signature of Abraham, and it is, where are you, Abraham? Right there, those two little guys right there. When Joseph Smith described, pointed and said, that is the signature of Abraham, that is what he was pointing to. The reason we do know that is because the signature of Abraham is also in the alphabet and grammar, and it is identified with Abraham. It actually goes through a couple of the different degrees, and it emphasizes further and further and further knowledge and information about Abraham in the uh, alphabet and the grammar. So everyone's still with me so far? Good. These are the bullet points. The... The signature of Abraham, of course, makes sense because Abraham would sign his own book. Duh, right? Because we know, right? We know based on descriptions that the rest of the papyri that they had and they were describing, that was identified as the book of Joseph. Well, that's not the papyri that Joseph Smith was focused on in order to find the book of Abraham or his signature. It was this breathing text. So, and then there's the other half of it. I'm just showing you the one half of it. So that's another bullet point. Another bullet point I want to make is the English text itself. The translation of this book of breathings came from the hieroglyphics in the first four rows of the hieroglyphics that were on the written part on the other side of facsimile number one. So on this side, they get the alphabet and grammar and Joe, or, uh, Abraham's signature. And on this side, they lay out these hieroglyphics in a column on paper and then on the side of each, to the side of each hieroglyphic, they translate verses of the book of Abraham. So all of the book of Abraham material comes from this piece of papyrus. We also know the English translation text of the book of Abraham refers a couple of times back to facsimile number one. And I shared Robert Rittner's insights where the entire historical thematic idea of Abraham being sacrificed is based on facsimile number one, so that the text itself reflects the picture. So those are the bullet points. And tonight, I will share contemporary eyewitnesses who identified the sheets of papyrus 
under glass slides, which Joseph Smith said he wanted to uh, protect and preserve the papyri. And it was those separate glass slides that Joseph Smith kept showing to witnesses saying, there's the signature of Abraham. This is the writings of Abraham. This is his autograph. He also identified the writings of Joseph. He also identified the writings of Aaron. And I will get into all that detail tonight. So that's briefly a brief summary. I told you two minutes, I took five. That's the way I am. I am a motormouth par excellence, yes. There are four points that I am going to focus on tonight to keep my discussion uh, structured. And there are a lot of... Uh, pieces of information within these four points, but I'm going to structure this so that you come away understanding four major themes from tonight's video. The first theme is the value of the Bayes' theorem inference kind of thinking. Okay. Oh, thank you, Splunky Doink. That's very kind of you. You're, you're awesome. So my first point is the Bayes' theorem philosophy and how and why it has helped me get clear. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that one point, but I'm going to show you how when I began to recognize the value of asking the kinds of questions that Bayes' theorem says we ought to ask, then... I began to become clear. So I'll talk about that. My second point I want to talk about tonight is how Joseph Smith himself made the, the information in the Egyptian papyri. Joseph Smith consistently identified Bible personalities and biblical themes in the Egyptian papyri. That's going to be my second point. My third point that I would like to make tonight is Joseph Smith is a profound literalist. He, I have not found anywhere in his sermons or his writings or his scriptures where he spiritualizes anything. He's not a he's not a mythographer. He just identified things literally as they were written, most especially in the Bible. And I will show you a lot of detailed information on that. My fourth point that I would like to make tonight is it is precisely and most interestingly, this Joseph Smith literalism, that is the fatal flaw for Kevin Barney's Semitic adaptation theory. And so, and I, and I will explain that theory, and we will identify and discuss that theory as we go along. So that is what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to try like crazy to stay on topic. I don't want to wander around. I've got several conclusions that I've written down that I want to identify later on. I've got quite a bit of material to cover. So let's get on this because, yeah, baby, I have some great information for you tonight. 
I have been working on this for quite some time, and I'm very excited. The first thing I need to do now, again, I don't, I, I don't think I have access to providing links, so I apologize for this. What you can do is pause the video once I show you this address. Okay, I'm going to give you a URL, or you can Google search this. This is the paper that I wrote eh, probably three or four years ago. Paul Osborne has helped me critique it, and we have been discussing it, and we have a huge discussion on it on, it on Shade's message board. You're welcome to come there and look at all the various points that Paul also added to it, which I thank him deeply for and many others. Uh, so I'm sorry for the amateurness, but this is critical Based on what I've seen, and I know it's going to come across as bragging. That's just the way it works. My paper that I'm going to share bits and pieces with you tonight is the most complete overall honest usage of as many of the witnesses as I can. The contemporary witnesses of the papyri as they were shown the mummies and the papyri or also from those who were showing the mummies in the papyri and what they said, newspaper articles, sermons, personal letters, etc. There's a lot of stuff. And my paper analyzes the most. I wish they would have put all of the witnesses in the Joseph Smith papers with the Book of Abraham volume. That would have helped round it out. That would have been much, much better. So here, yes, we are disillusioned apostates. Yes. Our problem is we keep looking at the evidence. I noticed that comment. You can Google search the backyard professor. Joseph Smith did say he had the, I can't read it backwards. Anyway, you can pause the video. You can Google search backyard professor. Joseph Smith said he did, in fact, possess Abraham's literal autograph. Or th that, that HTP thing goes on for absolutely ever. It's a nightmare. So anyway, that is the material I'm going to be using tonight. So I have that, and I have this and this. Okay, very good. So... I'm not going to explain Kevin Barney's uh, article just yet. What I want to do is a very brief analysis of Bayes' theorem and what it is. Don't make this more complicated than it needs to be. I'm going to greatly simplify it, and yet it has profound consequences. Here is what... Hold on. I'm getting there, I promise. Here is what Bayes' theorem does. Bayes' theorem is a rigorous method for interpreting evidence in the context of our previous experience and using all of our previous knowledge as well in an analysis. We bring everything to the table. That's the power of Bayes' theorem, really, truly. It is fundamental to science that opinions be 
evidence-driven. That is the essence of Bayes' theorem. Very nice. It is a method for interpreting evidence. We ask ourselves, the thing I have loved about Bayes' theorem is it has, the reason it leads to clarity for me at least is because I am asking better questions, more meaningful questions, and because of that, I am forced to deal with the entire context and the entire glob of evidence in whatever subject I'm looking at. I really like doing that. This is really important. We ask ourselves, how plausible is the information? How expected is the evidence given our background beliefs? And we ask ourselves how reliable the source is. Bayes' theorem is not about guessing or haphazardly arising at already believed in conclusions or presuppositions. It is not a matter of conjecture. A theorem, by definition, is a mathematical statement that has been proven to be true. Proven to be true. So it's not a theory. It is a theorem. Okay? So a Bayes' theorem, using it with our inferences about our theories, controls our own subjectivity. And this is probably what I like best about it. Because as a former apologist, I mean, we all know, even critics, everyone has subjectivity. That's not the issue. Bayes' theorem cannot get rid of our subjectivity. That's not the point. What it can do is control our subjectivity. And that is what we want to do the most. We'll never be fully objective, but we can become justifiably subjective with a high probability if we acquire all the evidence. That's a cool thing about it. So, we no longer get to pick and choose only what sits best with us, uh, what feels right, or fits our theory, or what strengthens our testimony. That's not what we're allowed to do with Bayes' theorem. It allows us to assess how likely our theory is when compared with all other theories. So we don't get to ignore any other points of view. We must bring them to the table as well. And to make a long story short, I'm not going to read all of this because I can explain it easier. I can explain it much faster and easier. Here, here is what I loved when I when I began to get clear about Bayes' theorem. We ask ourselves a different question. We don't ask ourselves like Kerry Moolstein does. Does this evidence fit my theory? Oh, it does. Good. Then I'll keep that. Does this evidence fit my theory? Oh, it doesn't? Then I'll ignore that. Or I will explain that away. That is what 
we cannot do. What we have to do instead is we bring in all of the theories, all of the evidence with all of our background knowledge about how the world works. And here are the questions that we begin to ask. We do propose a theory, of course. We have to figure out, look, something left that evidence, right? I, I mean, we haven't. Something left it. So the question is, we theorize, well, okay, we think thus and so caused that evidence, right? So the question we ask ourselves is, does the evidence fit my theory better than the other theory? We also ask in conjunction with that, we have some evidence. Is this the kind of evidence we would expect to have if our theory is right? Or is this the theory we would expect to have if the other theory is right? And so we are putting our theory in comparison, in a ratio, as it were, with someone else's theory. We are not asking to prove anything. You don't prove anything in Bayes' theorem. What we're looking for is which theory has a higher probability in explaining the evidence that we have. That's what we're looking for. We don't prove it. We just want to find out, is my theory more probable than that other theory? And even maybe that theory, that theory, that theory, that theory, and that theory, and that theory, like we are directly faced with this Joseph Smith papyri information, aren't we? How many LDS apologists have proposed various theories? And the other remarkable cool thing about Bayes' theorem, you can no longer ignore that the LDS have proposed numerous different theories. All of that now becomes our background knowledge because the evidence is there that John Twetness and Rich Lee Crapo came up with the mnemonic theory. The evidence is there that Hugh Nibley came up with the hidden cipher theory. And theory, I mean, sorry. And, and other LDS apologists, Will Scriver did a fair presentation, I believe it was 2010, something like that. I was at that presentation. I videoed it, and Scott Gordon said, no, you can't ha, use that. That's ours. That's our copyright. We own that property. You, How dare you video at our conference? You know, yeah, all right, whatever. So anyway, I've still got the video somewhere. It's okay. It's online, I think. Kevin Graham massacred it. But see, the and, and then John Gee's missing scroll theory, the most infamous, heinous, idiotic theory. And then Kerry Moulstein is coming up with various theories of his own. And now, interestingly enough, the, uh, well, you have the catalyst theory. You know, it was used as a jump off point to give Joseph Smith inspiration to find the book of Abraham in the papyri. So there's numerous theories 
And now that we have those numerous theories, each one of them take up part of that 100% probability space. I mean, you only have 100%, right? 100% probability means that theory is the one. Very few have 100%, if any at all. So the theme is the more theories that are proposed to try to explain why the evidence does not match the conclusion you want means it lowers the probability so that we have eight, nine different LDS apologetic theories now that lowers Joseph Smith being correct. And I don't think the apologists even realize that. It's amazing. The more different ad hoc excuses, because that's what their theories are, what's the evidence that we have? The papyri came back, it was translated, and it does not translate into the book of Abraham. Oh, that's a disaster for apologetics. So what are we going to do to save Joseph Smith? Well, I have a theory for why it doesn't match the papyri. I have a theory for why it doesn't match how Rittner translates it, or how Klaus Baer, or Richard Parker, or John Wilson translated it, right? For every theory they present, Bayes' theorem says, now that is part of our background, we must include that also. 100% divided by just one theory, the one that fit, is 100% or 1. We, we, we go from 0 to 1 in the percentages. If you have two theories and they're both equally as strong, you split the 100% to just 50%. That's how drastic it is to add more and more theories. So rather than saving Joseph Smith, you're putting him deeper in a hole. You're making it less and less and less likely that he was correct. And tonight I'm going to explore yet another theory, the Semitic adaptation theory. So that's probably either nine or 10 major LDS theories now about why the papyri do not contain the book of Abraham, which they should if Joseph Smith was telling the truth. Bayes' theorem is the best way to find this out on a probability. So I've, I've explained enough about Bayes. Thank you for your patience on this. Okay, let me move on. The way I approached Joseph Smith arguing about the signature of Abraham is, oh, hi, Patty Cake. Good to see you. Oh, it's no big deal. Yeah, I'm glad you showed up. I just barely started. No problem. You can watch the front of the video for the first half hour or so. So welcome. We're going to have a scream and knock down drag out tonight anyway. So you're all welcome. So, um, Zeon. Okay. Joseph Smith 
left a whole bunch of scripture. He left a whole bunch of letters, you know, his personal writings and all. The Joseph Smith Papers is an absolutely gigantic testament to that. There's several volumes, I believe over a dozen right now, for sure. And thank you, Sploinky Doink. You're awesome, dude. So I tested a question. The when, when the apologists meet this argument that Joseph Smith thought he had the signature of Abraham written by his own hand upon papyrus, that makes them uncomfortable. And so they're not so sure whether to take him literal or not. Now, instead of just saying yes or no, a Bayesian inference approach, which I took and which you guys can all look up on that website for my paper, I looked at all of the sermons, the letters, the scriptures, etc., that Joseph Smith produced. These are evidence, correct? Yes. Something produced that evidence. Joseph Smith, being the leader of the church, produced that magnificent pile of evidence that we have. So I looked in those, and I looked in several different sources. Uh, Dean Jesse has the personal writings of Joseph Smith. The Joseph Smith Papers now is the grandest collection. When I wrote my paper, I had 10 volumes accessible. And I looked, and I found where Joseph Smith ever spiritualized something. Now, what I mean by this, how literal is Joseph Smith? Was he half and half? Was he three quarters and a quarter? Was he never literal? Was he always literal, etc.? He did he did he metaphor everything and make everything an analogy like Philo of Alexandria did back in Jesus's day. If you've read Philo, you will know what it means to spiritualize things away, bring in number symbolism and and physical symbolism, etc. I never found Joseph Smith once spiritualizing anything. And that surprised me. I said, wow, uh, that is that is really fascinating. For instance, well, <clears throat> the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's not spiritualized by Joseph Smith. He literally, the second coming of Jesus, right? Jesus standing on the right hand of his father in one of those accounts of the first vision, <laughs> right? The literal Garden of Eden being in Jackson County, Missouri. That wasn't a spiritualized teaching. Joseph Smith said the literal gathering of Israel, you know, he sent the missionaries over to Great Britain. They baptized tens of thousands, much to the envy of today's missionaries, and they all came over. They crossed the Atlantic, and they came and gathered literally with Joseph Smith and the Quorum of the Twelve. I mean, the Twelve were out there doing uh, missionary work too, right? The Pratt brothers and Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young, all of those guys, Lyman White, all of them were out there missionary and, and bringing people to the fold. Well, that was a literal physical gathering. Now, when they got together, did Joseph Smith say we need to build temples so that we can baptize the dead, 
be baptized for the dead and so that we can be married for eternity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did he spiritualize the temples in our heart? What I mean when I say we do temple work is you do it in your heart. Of course not. Joseph Smith broke his back along with thousands of others producing literal temples, didn't he? See, his literalness in all of the doctrines that I can find, the literal gold plates of the Book of Mormon, the literalness of the priesthood, the literalness of all of the various doctrines, the return of the ten tribes, etc. Nothing is spiritualized. So in this one instance, that we have on Joseph Smith saying that is the signature of Abraham that he wrote by his own hand upon papyrus. Is that the only lone possible exception? Of course not. That doesn't make sense. The probability is higher that Joseph Smith literally meant he had that signature of Abraham than if he didn't. Notice I'm not saying I've proved it. It's just that based on all of our background knowledge concerning what Joseph Smith wrote, what he did in his life, how he gathered the people together, preparing for a literal return of Jesus, etc., it is his literal attitude that was consistent for 44 years. That's what I found. And then I looked into the teachings of Joseph Smith's followers, the Woodruffs, the Pratts, the Youngs, the Kimballs, all of his followers, the pages, and what did they teach, you see? So, Joseph Smith, while he was alive, literally taught literal truth out of the Bible. There really was a literal first man and first woman, Adam and Eve. You know, Peter, James, and John, the same ones mentioned in the New Testament with Jesus, a literal Jesus on earth, they came back and gave him and Oliver Cowdery the Melchizedek priesthood. Did his followers continue teaching what Joseph Smith had taught them about the literality? Or did they say, well, he was obviously mistaken. We need to bring in a much more spiritualized doctrine. Well, we have 26 magnificent four to 500 page volumes in the Journal of Discourses that we can look at, don't we? There are thousands of sermons from all of Joseph Smith's closest followers and successors, the apostles, the 70, whoever else was in the congregations, they constantly continued preaching Joseph Smith's literalness for ever since he died. Now that's interesting. So again, we ask the Bayesian question, is this literalness in the Journal of Discourses the kind of evidence we would expect to find if our theory is true? And the answer is, yes, it is. 
Is this the kind of evidence we would expect to find in the Journal of Discourses if Joseph Smith was not a literalist? And the answer there is no. So the probability is lower that he was a spiritualizer of the scriptures and of history and of philosophy and all that. And the probability goes higher that Joseph Smith was literally serious about what he said and taught. This is how Bayes gets us to ask the better questions. And there is another angle to the background that I investigated. When they acquired the papyri and the mummies, they showed them off to thousands of people for a long time. Uh, they housed it in Lucy Mack Smith's home and in, in her cellar, you know, they kept it under lock and key. I mean, these were Egyptian antiquities, and all of America was just gung-ho gangbusters about the Egyptian antiquities. So a lot of people and a lot of important people showed up, and either Joseph Smith himself was showing them, or else he would have, uh, well, his mother there, we've got much evidence that Lucy Mack Smith herself showed it. We have evidence that uh, some of the other people that were hanging out with Joseph Smith and helping him with his uh, work of building up literal cities of Zion, etc. You know, Nauvoo, Kirtland, right? Far West, etc. Nothing spiritual here, man. It's literal. How did they present the material? And is that what we would expect if they actually learned the information from Joseph Smith? And the evidence of the witness statements shows that they too applied a literality to the papyri and its meaning that Joseph Smith had taught them and they continued producing that kind of literality. Is this the kind of evidence we would expect to see from Joseph Smith's followers if he was a literalist and they believed him and they believed in him and they accepted literally he was a prophet, seer, revelator, and translator who could literally translate ancient records from unknown languages like the Golden Plates, and now this Egyptian papyri? Yes, this is the kind of evidence we would expect to find, and we do. So the witnesses themselves bump up the probability even higher that Joseph Smith was literal when he said, that's the signature of Abraham. Bayes' theorem helps us look at all of the angles from all directions, which is its PowerPoint. So another way that I can test my theory of a very literal Joseph Smith is I can check into the background information and evidence that we have from Joseph Smith's enemies and his detractors and technically all of John Q. Public who was shown the papyri and the mummies, right? So I've, I've covered Joseph Smith. I've covered his followers. 
there's still another segment of society we can look into, his enemies and the public. Now, the really interesting thing here, they scoffed. They were bemused. They were incredulous. They were completely disbelieving. And they did mock Joseph Smith and the Mormons in the, well, I mean, there's a lot of newspapers, a lot of newspaper articles and all that we've been able to gather. They were completely unpersuaded. It was because Joseph Smith claimed to have the very same papyri that Abraham himself made, touched, and wrote on, and signed his name on, and it was 4,000 years old, and it came from the mummies, and now he has it. It was exactly Joseph Smith's literalness that caused the other side, his enemies and the public, to mock it to be bemused and make fun of it. And oh, I mean, I'm not kidding, man. Some of those, some of those newspaper descriptions are hilarious. <laughs> they really are, because they obviously think Joseph Smith is completely out to flipping lunch. I mean, he, he's choking too much on weed, man. This guy is a nut job. It is the literalness that they were reacting to. Now, Bayes' theorem would have us ask, is this the kind of evidence we would expect to see from that segment of society if the theory that Joseph Smith was literal is true? And the answer there is, yes, it really is. The evidence makes sense. So again, that further continues to bump up the probability that Joseph Smith was a literalist. Would, is this the kind of evidence we would expect to see if Joseph Smith had spiritualized it? If he had never claimed it was as old as it was or that it was as significant as it was? No, that wouldn't be the reaction we would expect. So that also works well with the probability that Joseph Smith was a literalist. You see how Bayes can give us a much more full, complete, rounded out picture here with evidence from all quarters. Joseph Smith, his followers, his enemies, and John Q. Public. And we want to include as much that was written as possible in order to see the overall view. And it splits beautifully right down the middle. It is his literalness that thrilled Wilford Woodruff, and I'll read his account to you tonight, and it thrilled Orson and Party Pratt, and it thrilled Willard Richards and Wilford Woodruff and all of the scribes who were involved, William W. Phelps, all of them, Oliver Cowdery, they were absolutely electrified. We 
have a direct connection to Abraham, man. It is the literalness that gave them their testimonies. Very interesting. On the other hand, his enemies completely mocked it. They said, this is just idiotic. Again, it was because of the literalness that caused them to mock. Joseph Smith doesn't appear anywhere as being spiritualizing any of this. So I wanted to point that out on the literalness of Joseph Smith and the literalness of the witnesses because it makes perfect sense on the evidence. Now, the other interesting issue here is apologists are today uncomfortable with that kind of literalness, especially in Joseph Smith. It was never an issue. It was never an argument in Joseph Smith's day. Absolutely none of the tens of thousands of saints who received a testimony from the Holy Ghost that Joseph Smith had the writings of Abraham ever thought twice. It's only become a problem since 1967 when the actual original papyri were brought back to the church. That's a real important thing to keep in mind, yes. The controversy was not there. It's here and now. And there are reasons why. And I will share those reasons with you right now. Yes. So, so far, are there any questions? <laughs> Not that I'm even looking. You guys look like you're having a, a, a fun. Oh, Dan Vogel, thank you. That's a very good point. I'll bring that out. Joseph Smith and early Mormons wouldn't have paid $2,400 for a catalyst. He didn't need it when he saw the writings of John in vision, did he? He didn't pay for that. That just showed up, right? Thank you, Dan Vogel. That's a very good point. Yeah, I'm I'm with Doug Vincent. That was an excellent point. So th thank you for being here, Dan, so that you can kind of help fill in stuff. I hope I'm telling all this right. Uh, I think the probability is really high that I am. I'm about to assess the evidence right now. So the one issue. In Joseph Smith's day now, this is what the Mormons were thinking in his day, and we've got the witnesses for this, I promise. They wanted to know, even while Joseph Smith was showing the papyri to the curious and bemused visitors, did he actually have the writings of Abraham? And Joseph Smith assured them that he did. There's no question of that anymore. That's not even questionable with the evidence. So it is a logical thought for Joseph Smith's divine calling of being a seer 
that rests upon whether the book of Abraham was correctly translated or not, right? In Joseph Smith's day, there was simply no discussion about it. Of course, Joseph Smith translated it correctly. Both Orson and Parley P. Pratt, by the way, don't know if you're aware of this or not, but it's a nifty little historic side note. Both of them said Joseph Smith translated the papyrus with the Urim and Thummim. Wilford Woodruff now, he said it was direct heavenly inspiration. And one of Joseph Smith's scribes said, I sat down by Joseph Smith's side and penned the translation of the book of Abraham as Joseph Smith translated it off the papyri by inspiration, by revelation. That was their claim, right? There was no question then. It's always just been today. Very interesting, huh? So here is the account, and I want to read this in full because it brings in other issues concerning the literality of Joseph Smith that is very important because I believe today's Mormons are kind of fudging on this. They're kind of, ooh, ooh, they're, they're hesitant. They, oh, well, do we have to be that literal? Well, we're the early Mormons. And the answer to that is, certainly. Let me read this. February 19, 1842. Wilford Woodruff recorded that the truly impressive thing about the papyri and Joseph Smith having them is that, quote, the Lord is blessing Joseph with power to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God, to translate through the Urim and Thummim ancient records and hieroglyphics as old as Abraham or Adam, which causes our hearts to burn within us while we behold their glorious truths opened up unto us, Joseph the seer has presented us some of the book of Abraham, which was written by his own hand, but hid from the knowledge of man for the last 4,000 years, but has now come to light through the mercy of God, unquote. Where else would Wilfred Woodruff get that kind of information except from Joseph Smith? He was the one that bought the mummies and papyri, you guys. He's the one that within just a few hours of examining it, uh, I believe he was with Oliver Cowdery. He was with someone. And they said, much to our, it was Cowdery. Much to our delight, we discovered that the papyri held the writings of it, contained, held the writings of Abraham and of Joseph of Egypt of old. Within just a couple of hours. Well, where would Oliver Cowdery get that information? From Joseph Smith, of course. This all begins and stops on Joseph Smith's shoulders. This is critical to understand. Truly, for real, no question. So, um, just before he helped set the type to publish the book of Abraham in the times and seasons. Now we're moving up in time. We're in the 1840s now. Willard Richards had this to say. 
the original version of Joseph's, Joseph's editorial noted, in the present number will be found the commencement of the records discovered in Egypt sometime since, as penned by the hand of Father Abraham in Egypt, which I shall continue to translate and publish as fast as possible till the whole is completed. That's specific literal, folks. Truly, it, it, it can't be said plainer. It really can't. So, and another one. See, here's, here, here was a point, and you can read this in the various uh, journals of, of the early pioneers of the people who lived with Joseph Smith back in uh, Nauvoo and Kirtland and so on and so forth. You can read about this. It is Joseph Smith's literalness that enhanced his reputation as a prophet. When he asked to pay for the papyri, now there is some conflict in the record. Uh, some of the stories say the saints ponied up. Look, $2,400 is not small meat and potatoes back then. Chandler asked for $2,400, and Joseph got it within three days. Well, he bought the papyri. He had better make sure that the investment of the money was worth it. Joseph Smith had to deliver. And man, did he. Hey, this is the actual writings of Abraham and Joseph in his own hand. Wow. Well, that electrified the saints. This only showed them, look how blessed we are to have a, what? A literal prophet, seer, revelator, and translator in our midst. And not only that, Joseph Smith was the only one in America who could read those kind of writings through the power of God. Look, this didn't devalue Joseph Smith in anyone's eyes who were his believers. This electrified him. Is that the kind of evidence that makes sense of my theory? It is. Yes. So it raises the probability that Joseph Smith was literal. That's how Bayes gets us to think. I love that part about Bayes. So let's let's move on. I'm going to skip and jump. Joseph Smith, we, we understand this through all the witnesses based on what they said. Lucy Mack Smith in one place, uh, when she was showing another woman the, I mean, she showed the leg of one of the mummies, you know, she said, this is the leg of the lady who pulled Moses out of the water. Now, that's pretty cut pick and literal. Now, of course, the lady that Lucy Smith, I mean, sorry, I can't help but laugh. <laughs> of course, she was completely skeptical. I Come on, how in the hell would you know that? But again, notice it's the literalness of the interpretation of the mummy that is so amusing to the critic, right? But Lucy Mack Smith was absolutely fundamentally sincere, right? See, Joseph Smith is the primary source for this idea of having 
Abraham's actual, literal handwriting in Egyptian hieroglyphics on the papyri. What many of his closest followers and believers said and believed shows that he taught them in regards to Abraham and the papyri as well. If today we disregard Joseph Smith as not being credible in order to avoid embarrassment of our much more correct knowledge of what the real province of the papyri are, uh, that does not mean Joseph Smith can be dismissed because of our current knowledge. Because he had a higher source. Heaven, right? It's problematic for Joseph Smith is what I'm telling you. Truly, truly. Really, really bad. So, Kevin Barney says that I, I've actually, I, I've got to get to Henry Caswell. Hold on. I'm going to skip this part too. I have a lot to read. And let's see, I've been going an hour. We're doing good. About an hour. That's all right. You guys look like you're having a good discussion. Yes, the papyri were identified by Joseph Smith's followers. Thank you, Paul Osborne. I appreciate you pointing this out as being 3,500 years old. Correct. Yeah. The Mormons, the early Mormons were saying this stuff goes way back there, right? So, and they got that by revelation. That is fundamental key. No joke. So Henry Caswell described his visit to Nauvoo in 1842, where a gentleman showed him the papyri, having introduced me together with several Mormons to this sanctum sanctorum, he locked the door behind him, and he, he proceeded to what appeared to be a small chest of drawers. From this, he drew forth a number of glyce slades, like picture frames containing sheets of papyrus with Egyptian inscriptions and hieroglyphics. These had been unrolled from mummies, which the prophet had purchased at a cost of $2,400. It is at this point in Caswell's testimony that John Gee always stops quoting. But that's not all Caswell said. Let me finish the statement. Yeah. By some inexplicable mode, Caswell says, as the storekeeper informed me, Mr. Smith had discovered that these sheets, they had cut them apart by then, and they were putting them under glass slides to help preserve them because, of course, as all of our evidence shows, this was the most important papyrus that Joseph Smith had because he connected it to the book of Abraham. And that's the one he translated first. He never got to Joseph. So Caswell said he, he identified these sheets containing the writings of Abraham. There's our book of Abraham. It's, it's not on a lost roll. It's in these cut apart sheets and put under glass to be preserved. That is the book of Abraham that he is being shown. 
He said it contained the writings of Abraham written in his own hand while in Egypt, pointing to the figure of a man on a table. Gee, what do you think that means? That is the picture of Abraham at the point of being sacrificed. What did he point to? Facsimile number one. And that was under a glazed sheet. But this is one that we have now. So was this one under a glazed sheet, the original book of Abraham. And this one we have now. The identification from the eyewitness is very powerful that the book of breathings is the original book of Abraham. That is very interesting. That's why John Gee will not fully quote Caswell, right? Not good. Not good for the apologists right now. Uh, that's, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. I promised I wasn't going to do any ad hominem, but it would not be ad hominem to say that methodology is just not acceptable. And I promise I am being very charitable here. Just ask Dan Vogel if you think I'm bluffing. Ask Paul Osborne. I am being charitable, right, guys? Tell them. <laughs> of course, then they believe me. They've seen me wildly accusative before. But anyway, so here's the question that I asked myself because I was trying to approach this from a Bayes inference point of view. Here's the question. Why were so many of Joseph Smith's friends and followers saying that these were the writings of Abraham, his actual writings? It stands to reason that it is because he told them. He said so himself, right? Of course. On the first time examining the rolls, Chandler had brought the one roll containing the writings of Abraham, the other roll contained the writings of Joseph, and several of his followers proclaimed the simple truth as they learned it from Joseph Smith when he exhibited the papyri to so many of them as his history demonstrates. He displayed them numerous times through several years, both to his closest associates and to complete strangers, both young and old alike, male and female. Everybody was welcome. Come on in, I'll show you the papyri. And they did. They came in. Well, that's why. See what produced the evidence that we have of all these witnesses? Joseph Smith's literalness in saying, hey, come and check this out. I have the actual papyrus Abraham wrote. I have his book from the Egyptian. I have it. And what's more, I can translate it. That's what produced this evidence. That's interesting. John Whitmer says, because Joseph Smith could translate the papyri, these records, which give an account of our forefathers, much of which was written by Joseph of Egypt, William W. Phelps, in a letter to his wife, Sally, noted the rolls of papyrus contained the sacred record kept of Joseph in Pharaoh's court in Egypt and the teachings of Father Abraham. These records of old times, when we translate and print them in a book, will make a good witness for the Book of Mormon. It is not the anti-Mormons who are making the argument here, you guys. 
it is the Mormons who got really excited about this papyri. And they said, hey, man, now we can confirm the Book of Mormon with the papyri. That is interesting, right? Hugh Nibley kind of fudged on this. John Gee just flat blows it, but I'll get to him later. Tonight's Kerry Mulstein, just as soon as I establish some, a few more things. These records of old times, oh yeah, I said that. Oliver Cowdery said, upon the subject of the Egyptian records, or rather the writings of Abraham and Joseph, the writings of Abraham and Joseph, they were taken that literal, the writings of Abraham and Joseph. Joseph wrote his book. Abraham wrote his book in the Egyptian hieroglyphics. That is what Joseph Smith told them. And that is what they repeated. And Joseph Smith never corrected that. Now, there are places where uh, at one point, one of the uh, newspapers, I can't remember which one, doesn't matter. One of them was saying that, oh yeah, Joseph and the Mormons claim that they have the body of Abraham and they have the bodies of Adam and King David. And, oh, sure, sure. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery immediately jumped on that misrepresentation and published a rebuttal and said, we are not claiming to have the bodies of the patriarchs or any of the biblical kings. He corrected the false rumors. But the false rumor that he had Abraham's actual handwriting and signature and book, Joseph Smith never had to correct that because to him, it wasn't a rumor. It was the truth as he received it. That's seriously significant. That to me says that helps establish the literalness of Joseph Smith saying, yes, I have the signature of Abraham that he wrote in Egyptian hieroglyphics, and we can point to the hieroglyphic that Joseph Smith did on facsimile number one. Isn't that remarkable? That is so amazing. So Joseph was not unwilling to correct misperceptions. But having the literal signature of Abraham or the book was not one of the misperceptions. It was one of the truths that he was teaching everyone. That's seriously significant, right? Yeah. Very interesting. Benjamin F. Johnson, 1835, telling his wife in looking upon the bodies of those who 4,000 years ago were living princes and queens. And when the writings of Abraham upon papyrus, which accompanied them, were taken from its ancient casket, it seemed marvelous indeed. We are clearly left with the impression that those writings of Abraham came from him in antiquity. Joseph Smith never corrected that impression. If it was wrong, Wilford Woodruff in his journal actually commented too. He said, the writings that was said to be written in Abraham's day. Well, it's obvious that Joseph Smith was saying this as he was one of those, among others, that he allowed 
who constantly showed off the mummies and the papyri and was describing it as being back in Abraham's day. Because, of course, Abraham and Joseph wrote it. I believe it was partly P. Pratt who said Abraham began writing, and it wasn't until Joseph of Egypt got the writing that he finished writing his own book. They're talking writing on the papyri, you guys. That's what these witnesses were taught, and there's only one person who could have taught them that. Absolutely. So, uh, and this is the good part. In, a, in an interview with a gentleman in 1840, Joseph Smith himself presented the papyri. He said, these ancient records, said Joseph Smith, throw a great light upon the subject of Christianity. Now, this is the, uh, this is the, the biblical nature. This is the biblical aspect that Joseph gave uh, the provenance of the papyri. It was always having to do with the Bible and Christianity. Literally. They had been unrolled and preserved with great labor and care. They had been cut apart, put under glass slides, like Caswell said, because they were trying to preserve them. And they showed off the most important ones, the ones Joseph Smith was translating the book of Abraham the facsimiles with it, definitely. And this was described by a lot of witnesses, absolutely. I will show you how I interpret certain parts, Joseph Smith said. There, he said, pointing to a particular character. And we know where he's pointing, don't we? Yeah, we've seen this. We have seen this with our own eyes <laughs> upon papyrus. Oh, what a smart aleck. Right there. Joseph Smith's pointing right there. Is that not groovy? All right. That is the signature of the patriarch Abraham. Now, notice his language. Again, he had unrolled and preserved the papyri, of course. Yeah. He preserved them as sheets under glass slides, as other witnesses indicated they were shown. Joseph is showing him the preserved sheets under glass here of the book of Abraham and showing the signature of the patriarch on the papyri, of course. This makes sense since Abraham wouldn't have signed Joseph's own book but his own, of course. So William Appleby in his journal recorded upon seeing the mummies and the records that they consist of having some of the writings of ancient Abraham and of Joseph. There is a perceptible difference between the writings, he says. Joseph appears to have been the better scribe. His handwriting was better. See, they're talking literal handwriting, you guys. They're saying Abraham wrote his book upon papyrus by his own hand in the Egyptian hieroglyphic. And when you compare the handwriting of Joseph, Joseph's handwriting is better. But they're talking literally the hieroglyphics. They said 
Abraham and Joseph wrote on that very piece of papyrus that they had. It's that literal. Remarkable, isn't it? Very interesting. Clearly, the information says it was their actual handwriting. And Appleby further says something even more interesting. He says, the male mummy, well, that was one of the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. And a priest, as he is embalmed with his tongue extended, representing a speaker, the females are his wife and his daughter, as a part of the writing has been translated and informs us who they were. And by the way, uh, Dan Vogel, you're still in the audience, I suspect. I'm going to tout your videos uh, the Princess Katumin. You guys need to go watch Dan Vogel's videos on that. Seriously. It, it is spectacular how important the mummies also were to Joseph Smith. Dan Vogel brings this out really good in his videos, the, uh, the Book of Abraham series. Just Google Dan Vogel Book of Abraham and you'll get the whole enchilada, man. It's awesome. I would strongly advise you to go look at those videos. I did and they're a delight. I'm not kidding. So, uh, as part of the writing has been translated and informs us who they were and whose writing it is, and when these mummies were embalmed, which is nearly 4,000 years ago, another witness describing the age of the mummies, the writings, 4,000 years ago. Now, where did they get that information from? except Joseph Smith. That's what he was teaching them. That's why they knew when to date them, because Joseph Smith, the prophet, seer, revelator, and translator, knew that, and he said so. So they are repeating the information that they got from Joseph Smith. This is really an important point, right? It begins and ends with Joseph Smith, and whose writings was it, if not Abraham's, that they are talking about, that's what they were always told. Right. So in a different, though equally interesting vein, the anti-Mormon, Tyler Parsons, sneered. Here's what he said. He's, he read or attempted to read a part of the letter purporting to be an extract from the Abrahamic letter that was found with the mummy. See, he's appearing to mock the very thing that Joseph Smith's followers loved. And that was that they contained a literal book writing of Abraham. The Anna-Mormons are mocking that. The pro-Mormons, they're getting testimonies of it because it is literal. That's real interesting, isn't it? And this evidence makes sense, of course. I've read Wilford Woodrow. Oh, Parley P. Pratt's really important too. Let me read what Parley P. Pratt said. Let's see, I'm at an hour 22. Are all you guys all right? You mind if I keep going? Yeah, Nikki Maccabee, Dan's videos, they really are good. Yes, they really are. Um, Parley Pratt, one of Joseph's followers, he said the record is now in course of translation and proves to be a record written partly by the father of the faithful, Abraham, and finished by Joseph. 
when in Egypt. Yeah, it was part of he who said that. And Charlotte Haven's testimony of visiting Mother Smith, who had the relics in her house, noted Mother Smith claiming the writings were written by Abraham and Isaac, written in Hebrew and Sanskrit. So Haven also noted it sounded like what Mother Smith was saying was a bunch of Bible stories from the Old Testament. Now, where would she get that idea of the biblical themes? Lucy claimed it came from Joseph Smith. That's who began that, right? The literalness, again, from the Bible. The literal Bible history, as the Bible says it happened, Joseph Smith accepted that. Literal. Well, the Bible said Joseph was in Egypt and he wrote his book and all that, you know. The Bible says Abraham was the father of the faithful. He went down into Egypt and all that. It's in the Bible. That story must be true. So he's tying the literal biblical history from his understanding directly onto these incredibly fascinating and interesting antiquities that thousands of people were coming to see. Yeah. That's where it goes. Definitely. So, oh, hold on. I've got to keep reading this. Let me keep reading this. This is really good. Haven also noted that it sounded like what Mother Smith was saying was a bunch of Bible stories from the Old Testament. I covered that. Other witnesses, including Joseph Smith himself, claimed the papyri were all about stories of various biblical patriarchs and their sundry adventures. That part of Haven's account sounds authentic. The part about Mother Smith saying it was written in Hebrew and Sanskrit has caused some discussion. Could she and did she actually know anything about the Hebrew and the Sanskrit? Of course not. <laughs> no, of course not. Notice, though, Lucy Smith claimed that what she was saying was, quote, through the inspiration of her son Joseph, unquote. So it's doubtful because of lack of evidence that Joseph ever taught the scrolls or the fragments were written in either language. However, the parts about the biblical characters seem to gel with other witnesses and the description they heard about the serpent tempting Eve. Right there. Sorry, I pointed to uh, the serpent tempting Eve. You can see it right there. There's Enoch's pillar. There's the, uh, no, I don't see it now. Where is it? Talked about the representation, there it is, the representation of the Godhead, three in one. There it is right there. Three in one. So they were describing the Egyptian materials based upon biblical information, Christian information, etc., This propensity for biblical literalism is better understood when we recognize that Joseph Smith claimed to have seen, to have conversed with, and shared priesthood keys with Adam, Seth, Enoch, Noah, 
Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Nephi, John the Baptist, Peter, James, John. I mean, how much more literal can you possibly get than Joseph Smith, right? The three Nephites, Paul, Mormon, and Moroni. I mean, for Pete's sake, in this background regard, it's not surprising at all that Joseph Smith believed he had the literal handwriting of Abraham. Of course he did. That makes perfect sense. To say that he was so literal in absolutely everything else, but in this one instance, that was only an assumption, that is completely inconsistent on the apologist's part, truly. I mean, after all, do they believe they have the literal Melchizedek priesthood? Do you, apologists? Well, there you go. Are, are you believing in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ as Joseph Smith taught? Yeah. Do you believe in the literal gold plates? Yeah? Okay. Then how come you're so literal in so much, Jackson County, Missouri, being the Adam on the Amon, the Garden of Eden? You know, Enoch was literally translated into heaven. It's Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, etc. Well, the literal baptism for the dead actually does work for the dead if they accept the ordinance, etc., you don't stay home and say, well, spiritually, I was baptized for 500 people today. No, you go into a literal building that was built by material on earth, and you go into a fountain literally filled with actual water, and you do baptisms for the dead literally, yes? Well, all right. If you're so literal on everything else, this is just completely minuscule about having the literal handwriting of Abraham, and yet today's apologists argue against that. Isn't that fascinating? Entirely, unacceptably inconsistent with your own theology, doctrines, and beliefs if you're a Mormon, right? So, Josiah Quincy's description is intriguing. He described Joseph as saying about a particular parchment, that is the handwriting of Abraham, the father of the faithful. This is the autograph of Moses, and these lines were written by his brother Aaron. Again, so literal and so biblical, right? This is Joseph Smith. This is where they got it all from. Starts with him, ends with him. Right? Henry Haskett, Hal, Halkett, related the details of his visit with the prophet. He repeated the same information. And this lends credibility that it was Joseph Smith who said what he said to Quincy. In fact, Charles Francis Adams also reported this incident of Joseph Smith himself was the one teaching that they had the actual and literal handwriting of the patriarch on the papyri. Theodule de Veria, this is very interesting, one of the very first Egyptologists who took issue against Joseph Smith's translations in 1855, said that the papyri are, quote, 
considered by the Mormons as autobiographical memoirs of Abraham, the Mormons regard as writings from the hand of Abraham, unquote. Notice who he's saying believes that, the Mormons. Where did they get that information from? Joseph Smith. Of course, they didn't get it from Michael Chandler. Come on, right? <laughs> so I'm going to skip this. I'm, it's getting a little bit late. I'm going to skip that just a little bit. Oh, here, well, no, let me skip that. I'm going to skip this too. I will, I will get to uh, some of Hugh Nibley's materials here in a few weeks. I've got John Gee in line. I've got Kerry Moulstein and then uh, Hugh Nibley's materials. And then I'm going to refute my own apologetic information. I'm about ready to get to Kevin. In fact, I have to get to Kevin Barney. I have to get to Kevin Barney. Uh, I have all kinds of witnesses. Please do look this paper up. If you print it out, it's 71 pages in print. Uh, the issue, the issue uh, that I want to make sure I cover tonight time goes fast when you're having fun, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this is really good stuff. Okay, here we go. Kevin Barney, in his article, it's in uh, Papyrus Astronomy, Astronomy, Papyrus, and Covenant. It's, uh, chapter, it's uh, chapter 8, the facsimiles and Semitic adaptation of existing sources. I'm going to summarize briefly, Kevin Barney, because I do want to answer the fatal flaw that refutes his argument. No matter how much extra evidence he could come up with, it cannot help him. And, and this is interesting. So here's how Kevin puts it. He begins in the 1912 affair of Solomon Spalding, not Solomon, sorry, the Reverend Franklin Spalding, where he got eight experts Egyptologists who refuted Joseph Smith translations. Okay. Spalding based his information which he gave to those eight experts upon what he learned the Mormons themselves believed, which they had gotten from Joseph Smith. Okay? Spalding cheated on one major issue. He did claim that the facsimiles that he sent out to each of those experts were the originals. And in that, he was wrong. They were not. In all else that Spalding said, he did not invent that in order to get a, a helpful edge, right, against the Mormons. He didn't do it that way. He was simply taking Joseph Smith's claims to their logical conclusion. And that's why his argument was so powerful, because Mormon apologists don't do that. 
it's too uncomfortable. And that's what I'm going to show you right now, and then I'll wrap this up. This is what is so remarkably fascinating about this theory. I will just highlight bits and pieces. I, I would strongly encourage you to read Kevin's entire article. I will highlight bits and pieces so that we can get Kevin's view, and then I will show you the problem. Kevin, page 108 in Astronomy, Papyrus, and Covenant. I'm on page 108, about the middle of the page. Again, I'm just highlighting his main point from the 1912 time on argument. When we, meaning us today, when we, Mormons, scholars, everyone, together with the 1912 respondents, properly reject the autographic assumptions about the papyri, we then find other possibilities concerning the origins and history of the book of Abraham. We will suggest that the facsimiles may not have been drawn by Abraham's hand, but may have been Egyptian religious vignettes that were adopted or adapted by an Egyptian Jewish redactor as illustrations of the book of Abraham. Okay, on page 109, he says, he's about three-fourths of the way down on the page now. He says, so here is a way to test Joseph's skill as a translator and indirectly to test the value of the Book of Mormon as a translation with this setup. And he's going to explain the setup right now. Spalding was not being an anti-Mormon when he said this is a beautiful test for the Book of Mormon because that's exactly what the Mormons in Joseph Smith's day thought. Very important. Nibley made it sound like Spaulding was just being an idiotic anti-Mormon, and he wasn't. He was basing it on what the early Mormons believed. On page 111, based, he said, the third reason Spaulding's pamphlet effectively got attention was that it was based on a web of assumptions that seemed to have been commonly accepted by Mormons at that time. Here are the assumptions. This is what Spaulding himself spelled out, but these assumptions, not knowledge or fact, let Barney describe them. The papyrus from which the book of Abraham was taken was an original autograph of Abraham and was penned by the great patriarch himself, that is, Abraham's own hand, had touched the very papyrus that came into Joseph's possession. The Two, the papyrus from which the facsimiles were taken were part and parcel with the book of Abraham and similarly were autographed documents, that is, they were drawn by Abraham's own hand. The third point, since all of these papyri have been written by Abraham himself, it necessarily follows that Abraham originally composed them in the Egyptian language. The fourth point is, accordingly, there was no textual transmission 
uh, of these documents in antiquity. And the fifth point is, therefore, as purely Egyptian documents, the facsimiles could properly be tested without any reference at all to the Book of Abraham, which they purport to relate. Right? For convenience of reference, I will refer to these concepts as the autographic assumptions. Still on page 111, the autographic assumptions, if accepted, gave Spalding an advantage in a couple of important respects. First, by insisting that the papyri underlying the Book of Abraham and the facsimiles were autographic documents, he established a very early baseline for claims of historical anachronisms. Since Abraham is generally believed to have lived around the 12th century BC, give or take a few centuries, if documents of the type represented by the facsimiles could be shown to date only to substantially later period, the facsimiles could not, in fact, have been derived from Abraham. Second, if the papyri were penned by Abraham himself in Egyptian, then the Egyptian content of the facsimiles must have been fully intended by Abraham, and the facsimiles could be judged as original documents, or Egyptian documents, I'm sorry, just like any other Egyptian papyri. Therefore, it would be proper for the Egyptologists to evaluate the authenticity of Joseph's proffered explanations without taking into account the English book of Abraham, the papyrus source of which no longer being extant. While the autographic assumptions seem to have been commonly accepted among the saints of the day, that was only because they had been unexamined. Of course they were unexamined. Because they received all this information from Joseph Smith himself. They didn't need to examine Joseph Smith. They believed him. They believed in him. They believed there was a living biblical prophet, seer, revelator, and translator in their own town. And he was cutting out the stone to help them build their own temples, their own churches, their own houses, and their own boats. Of course, they were unexamined. You don't examine a revelation from God through the Urim and Thummim. You believe it. You Teach it. Again, the Mormons in Joseph Smith's day had no problem with any of the information Joseph Smith was teaching them. It's only since the papyri came back today. Now, Barney advocates a Jewish redactor used the Egyptian documents 
for his own redaction of a book of Abraham and somehow found a way to hide it into the coffin with the mummies. Notice the problem with this. Why would we have to propose an ancient Jewish redactor, hypothetically, that virtually has no evidence, when we can say Joseph Smith himself is the redactor? Of course. The J-Rad, the Jewish redactor, can also mean Joseph redactor. Now, I get this from Radio Free Mormon, who told me that Kevin Barney himself told him that. So, Occam's razor properly comes into focus here, and it says, choose the simpler explanation. Do not add extra hypotheses to your theories. It makes them less probable. So Barney's entire hypothesis of an ancient Jewish redactor is simply an ad hoc excuse for trying to cover the fact that the evidence of the papyri do not demonstrate Joseph Smith is a true prophet, seer, revelator, and translator, but that he either lied about doing it or he muffed it which puts the onus on God. Notice, he says, let's reject the autographic assumption. Let me go through each one of these again, and I will give you my view of the five points Kevin said on the problem of adopting the assumptions of the autograph, okay? Let me give you my response based on Bayes' theorem thinking. Number one, the papyrus from which the book of Abraham was taken was an original autograph of Abraham and was penned by the great patriarch himself. That is, Abraham's own hand had touched the very papyrus that came into Joseph's possession. So to the early Mormons and to Joseph Smith, yeah, basically I've just said this, that appears to be exactly what was believed taught and shared with anyone who would listen and who visited to see the relics and the published responses as well of newspapers, books, letters, articles shows this also, which makes sense on the claim that this is what Joseph Smith himself believed. The literal autograph. Yeah, well, Abraham wrote it, of course. It's his book and I'm translating it. That the evidence makes sense on the theory that Joseph Smith is a literalist. It ups the probability. If it is an assumption, it is entirely on the shoulders of Joseph Smith himself. The literalist background checking I've been doing using every available source of Joseph Smith's own writings, diaries, letters, correspondence shows the probability is very high that this is indeed what Joseph Smith himself taught and believed. In his day, it was no assumption. It was revealed knowledge. And that's the fatal flaw in Barney's argument. <laughs> 
Barney is throwing Joseph Smith under the bus. Kevin Barney is saying we don't have to believe that Joseph Smith actually received a revelation on this. It's just his assumption. And yet his other followers said it was by heavenly revelation as they translated the papyri almost sitting on his lap watching him or else he was using the Urim and Thummim. So Kevin Barney's argument says, well, we don't believe any of the early witnesses either. Now, is it just me or don't Mormons love to make a big deal about eyewitness testimony, especially in early Mormonism? I mean, what about the witnesses to the gold plates? Do we now dismiss them? Are we allowed to do that? Well, the Mormons say heavens no. Well, then why do the Mormons think they have the right to dismiss these contemporary eyewitnesses? There's the fatal blow. Regardless of how many stories Kevin can find of actual Jews adapting Egyptian writings to their own ideas, that doesn't matter. Kevin shows three examples. He could have shown 33 examples, and it won't help his argument, because he has to disbelieve in Joseph Smith's own testimony in order to save Joseph Smith from our knowledge today. Is that not wickedly weird? <laughs> wow, what a conundrum. But I'm not done. Let's go to number two. Number two, or number one, sorry. no, number two. The papyri from which the facsimiles were taken were part and parcel with the Book of Abraham and similarly autographic documents. That is, they were drawn by Abraham's own hand. Yes, that assumption was considered the truth and revealed knowledge in Joseph Smith's day. So we say, yes, that's right. Because Joseph Smith said the facsimiles, and they certainly are labeled as such, are from the book of Abraham. They are literally described in the plainest of language taken from the book of Abraham. Again, Occam's Razor says the easiest explanation to account for the book of Abraham, referring the reader back to facsimile number one in the actual text of the story in chapter one, verse 14, is Abraham indicating that he wanted his reader to look at the illustration that he had drawn for their benefit so that they could have an understanding of his attempted sacrifice. It's meant literal. Interesting, huh? The third point. Since all these papyri have been written by Abraham itself, it necessarily follows that Abraham originally composed them in Egyptian language. This is correct. That is what you have to assume because that is in fact what Joseph Smith taught. He said that, and other witnesses actually said the writing was also done and finished by Joseph when he was in Egypt. Sure. 
So both Abraham and Joseph did the writing and the drawing, all in Egyptian hieroglyphics and pictures. And it all had to do with the real flesh and blood, biblical personalities, events, and religious precepts as well. So there's no other way to read Joseph Smith directly saying, that is the signature of Abraham, and that is the writing of Abraham. One looks at any and all of the papyri and sees nothing but Egyptian hieroglyphic or hieratic. Therefore, Abraham wrote in it, if Joseph Smith saw his signature and worked on with his scribes exactly which hieroglyph Abraham signed as his signature. One witness described Joseph's handwriting as being better than Abraham's, which means the hieroglyphs were obviously considered to be Abraham's and Joseph's directly on that very papyri that they possessed and they were translating. Yes, again, the literalness. The fourth point, there was no textual transmission of these documents in antiquity. That's right. Wilford Woodruff said the writings laid unknown and hid from men for 4,000 years. That's enough to wipe out Kevin Barney's argument. There was no textual transmission. There was no redactor anciently. There was no manipulating of the records or putting in Jewish writings, which is so odd, with books of breathings. No other book of breathings has this thing, this issue. It, 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 it's just so odd out that it's utterly ridiculous, right? And it kills Kevin Barney's argument. And finally... As purely Egyptian documents, the facsimiles can be properly tested without any reference at all to the book of Abraham. And this also is entirely correct. Yes, absolutely. And it has been done so numerous times by the, all the Egyptologists from the very beginning, beginning with Theodule de Veria, yeah, in 1855, right? Yeah, so... He made exact and direct empirical claims, Joseph Smith did, about what the hieroglyphics in the facsimiles meant. And he said, as is said by the Egyptians and called by the Egyptians, and that which is called by the Egyptians. And he also said, in Egyptian, this signifies or that signifies. He also said, as understood by the Egyptians, and the Egyptians meant this or that to signify this or that. King Pharaoh, whose name is given in the characters above his head, and as given also in the figure 10, in facsimiles number one, the prince and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as written above his hand, and as represented by the characters above his hand. There is no reason to even glance at the book of Abraham with Joseph Smith being on trial, because that's what we have here. It's not the book of Abraham that's on trial. It's Joseph Smith and his claim to translate it from papyrus. That's what we're discussing. So, these claims are directly related to Egyptian language and translation, culture, and religion on the facsimiles themselves, 
not in the book of Abraham. And Joseph Smith directly said that his translation will be correct. History of the Church, Volume 2, page 351. Well, as correct as practiced by the ancients, and as such, they can be tested by that exact same knowledge. Absolutely. They are simply stated as connecting with ancient Egyptian, and so it's to ancient Egyptian that we logically go to in order to see if the probability supports or refutes the claims made by Joseph Smith Jr. himself concerning the papyri, the hieroglyphics, and his translation. Barney describes the effects of whether he knows it or not actually taking Joseph Smith seriously at his inspiration from God. This is where things get utterly fascinating because, and here I'm going to wrap up and I'm going to read my own conclusions. This is the problem with the Semitic adaptation theory. All of the assumptions, Kevin Barney is labeling God's revelations to Joseph Smith as an assumption. Now, if you're a believing Mormon, you're going to want to stone Kevin Barney. Don't. Relax. You can't excommunicate him. Forget it. Because all of the members of the church in the leadership up there in Salt Lake they also are throwing a lot of the former Mormons under the bus. It's just that Kevin Barney appears to be one of the first ones to throw Joseph Smith under the bus. He is saying we cannot believe what Joseph Smith taught. In fact, he's putting God into question, amazingly enough. Now, he's not doing this intentionally because he's wicked or evil or because Kevin Barney has become apostate. In his mind and heart, he is trying to save and help Joseph Smith appear to be more credible because today we know the papyri do not date back to Abraham's time 4,000 years ago. They date to Ptolemaic times, 100 BC. That is very firm. Joseph Smith simply didn't have a clue what he was talking about when he taught everybody that these mummies and the papyri were 4,000 years old or 3,500 years old. However, however old, Joseph Smith just simply didn't have a pee-picking clue. That's fact. Literally, truly. That's the problem. Here's the other problem. His followers claimed to receive the Holy Ghost, testifying to them that what Joseph Smith was teaching them was true. And his followers were not just the everyday Sally, Dick, and James. These were the future prophets and apostles of the church leadership who were testifying, the Wilford Woodruffs, the Pratts, the Cowdries, the Parishes, the Phelps, his own mother. So they say the Holy Ghost witnessed to them the truth. What does that tell us about the Holy Ghost? 
and the Mormon teachings about how the Holy Ghost operates, when in fact, that means God himself through the Holy Ghost was lying about the truth to thousands of people in early Mormonism. How did the apologists overcome that is my question to them. I'll let you ponder that, ponderize it, and get back with me on that. If you can dismiss witnesses at your convenience in order to try to make it look like Joseph Smith's knowledge was what we know today, then we can also dismiss any and all witnesses in Mormonism. The Book of Mormon witnesses, all of them. They can all be thrown out. But Mormons wouldn't be satisfied with that. So why do Mormons think they're privileged to pick and choose which witnesses they'll use and dismiss the rest as assumptions? That's inconsistent on your part. That's fatal to the theory. Also, Joseph Smith is the problem. This is squarely on his head. Hugh Nibley got it backwards, on purpose, I believe, because he was muddying up the issues, and I was defending his arguments. That's why I never really did get clarity, but now I'm getting clarity, and that is why I wanted to discuss Kevin Barney's article, along with the contemporary witnesses to the papyri and the mummies, because this also gives us clarity. We now know it's not the anti-Mormon who is saying all of these are assumptions. It is the Mormon scholars. Because the knowledge today completely wipes out Joseph Smith. And they don't want to have Joseph Smith wiped out. So they have to pick and choose which witnesses they'll use and all that. Bayes' theorem says, not so fast, bucko. You're not allowed to do that. We have to incorporate all of the evidence and all of the background and go from there. When we do that, we find serious trouble against Joseph Smith being right. So if we can't believe Joseph Smith's literalness on Abraham's signature, why would we believe his literalness on anything else? That's the other angle. Why believe anything he said that was literal? If this isn't literal, nothing is. Because he was nothing if not absolutely literal, right? Yeah. The signature is in the alphabet and grammar, and it comes from facsimile number one. The alphabet and grammar hieroglyphs came from facsimile number one. Joseph Smith claimed to know Egyptian, and he lied. He did not. We now know that he did not know. Even if others claimed they saw him receive revelation, they don't have a clue what that actually looks like. Joseph Smith taught them that's what it looked like. But that's not it, because we now have the knowledge, and it's not what Joseph Smith claimed. So even his followers with testimonies still don't have a clue what the Holy Ghost is, does, or how it works. 
that's a tough issue for apologists. Now you know why I quit being an apologist for Pete's sake. I can't defend the indefensible. Finally, the buck starts and stops with Joseph Smith. Don't let any Mormon tell you otherwise. We've got the witnesses' evidences. Look up my article. I'm very sincerely serious. Look up that article and print it off. I've done a full-scale investigation. Barney is calling inspiration an assumption. Multiple witnesses to heavenly help with the papyri, he's calling an assumption. Do they even know what it means? Do they even know what a testimony is? No. Barney says it's just their assumption. They claim it was revelation. Barney says, no, no, it was an assumption. Well, who knows better? Well, who knows, right? Smith refuted rumors about the mummies, but never anything said about the papyri or the biblical provenance and issues of the biblical personalities in the papyri. Joseph Smith was on board with that. I want to make it crystal clear. I mean crystal clear. The assumptions today were considered in Joseph Smith's day as heavenly inspiration and God's direct revelation through the Urim and Thummim to Joseph Smith and his followers. That is not believed in by today's apologists. They don't believe what Joseph Smith said or taught or believed, or Wilford Woodruff, or Parley or Orson Pratt, or Oliver Cowdery, or Warren Parrish, or Frederick G. Williams, or William W. Phelps. We don't either. But here's the catch. Defenders are trying to save Joseph Smith. Disbelieving what he taught is a very strange way to do that, right? Kind of weird, right? Yeah. Now, not only Joseph Smith is on trial, but God himself is with the current apologetic approach. They are, in essence, saying God did not inspire Joseph Smith or Woodruff or the Pratts or the Cowdery's or the rest of the saints. So the early Mormon testimonies don't count. And our question is, why not? If you can dismiss them, we can dismiss all of them. So that's the fatal flaw with Kevin Barney's ingenious theory. I would strongly advise you to read it, but by all means, do not believe it because it is absolutely wrong. It's contradictory between early Mormonism and today. And that's because we now do know how to translate the hieroglyphics and they don't save Joseph Smith. So anyway, that is what I have. I am at two hours and six minutes. Uh, I hope you guys had a boatload of fun on this. It looks to me like you've been talking pretty steady and regular. So have I. Uh, I really wanted to make this more of a formal presentation, giving you the explicit point by point by point, because it's so important that we get clear. It's, it's actually really important that 
we help others get clear. So tell them about this video. I'm going to say right now on these issues with the with the uh, the papyri, the book of Abraham, history and all that jazz, uh, Bill Real with Mormon Discussions, Inc. is absolutely doing a stellar job with this organization, kicking out a boatload of material on all aspects, the social stuff, the the scriptural stuff, the historical materials and all that. Radio Free Mormon on the Mormonism Live and on his podcast. Myself on the Backyard Professor Live and my videos and podcasts. Brent Metcalf, Dan Vogel, all of us, this team, we have such a total encompassing evidence-based view and interpretation. We are not constrained to come to any kind of a preferred conclusion. We don't have anyone in authority threatening our spiritual welfare if we don't make this evidence say the right thing. That is just cheating. Okay, there I said it. I hate to I hate to turn accuser, but I'm not hating looking at the evidence in an honest manner in totality, as far as we can, we're fallible. Yeah, I get it. And later on, and base theorem accounts for this too, you guys, no joke. Base theorem accounts for our fallibility because it says when new evidence comes out, then we adjust, we put it into the whole thing and see if that changes our probabilities. If it does, then we adjust our understanding and knowledge. That's not being willy-nilly or faithless in the testimony. See, that's part of the Mormon brainwash that you don't have to forget about it. We must be like the willow and flexible in the wind or it's going to snap you off and kill you. Oh, thank you, Mo. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. So what's the name of your article? Uh, Good question. Hang on. The name of my article is Joseph Smith said he did, in fact, possess Abraham's literal autograph and the papyri were written by his own hand. It's on the Wix site, W-I-X site. But you can find it best by just Googling backyard professor and then the words Joseph Smith said he did, in fact, possess Abraham's literal autograph. I put this up at the first, but I'll put that up again. You can Google that title and you'll get right to it. I would give you the URL, but it's five times longer. But it's a very important... I gave it my very best shot of being all-inclusive and total contextually honest with everything the witnesses were saying. And we have found some amazing material, some amazing strength with our side saying, time out, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, You guys aren't arguing correctly, you apologists. 
you're fudging the evidence because we have the evidence too now. So we know you're fudging it. So, so the anti-Mormons, the so-called, the quote, anti-Mormons are the ones telling the more honest, full, approachable truth based on the evidence than the truth holding Mormons with testimonies. And that is deeply ironic. See, there's that word again. Uh, I use irony a lot now, the word, simply because it's so mind-boggling as a former apologist. I was too honest. I was honest enough to recognize uh, I'm just simply repeating their arguments, and I actually recognize, well, gee, that means I've accepted their biases and their assumptions. What about the evidence itself? And when I got to the evidence, completely changed my picture. That's why that is one of the impetus for me to make more of these videos, covering all of the apologetics, the arguments. The people are fine people. I'm not doing ad hominem. I'm showing why I don't accept those arguments anymore. They are just not viable. They are not accurate. I can demonstrate that with a high degree of probability as I've been doing tonight. And I did two weeks ago. And I will continue to do every Sunday night, six o'clock mountain time. I'm going to come on live and I'm going to pick on uh, other arguments. I'm going to see if I can get into John Gee next week. I think I've basically uh, shown Kevin's Barney's fatal flaws. Um, I will begin discussing John Gee. That may take a couple of live sessions. Carrie Molstein may take a couple of live sessions. Hugh Nibley may take a couple of live sessions. My own apologetic may take a couple of live sessions. In the meantime, I have great news. Truly, I've got it in the wind now that uh, Brent Metcalf and Dan Vogel are coming back onto Mormonism Live, and they are also going to discuss deep dives into the alphabet and grammar and the different meanings of the hieroglyphics, which ones were actually off the papyri and which ones Joseph Smith invented and what he did to invent the hieroglyphics. I... It's fantastically interesting. Let's face it, Joseph Smith was really creative. I mean, come on. But does that make a true prophet? No. Sorry, doesn't. That's the way it goes. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be antagonistic. I'm not angry. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going out so that I can sin tonight after I'm done here. No, that has none of that has anything to do with anything. All of that is ad hominem. No, I am simply exploring the evidence. I'm doing it with fellow scholars and people and associates whom I really am having a delightful time with, both on YouTube, online, in real life, on the telephone, through the email, on message boards. I mean, this whole group of us each have our own experiences. We each have our own knowledges. We have our own way of presenting the materials. But when you take it all together and tie it all together, you have something solid with which to then properly, accurately make a better decision about what to do intellectually, in your heart, in your life. You don't have to hate anyone. You don't have to make enemies. You don't have to make anyone your enemy. No one is my enemy. 
I don't, I'm not angry at any of the Mormons. I don't need to mock any of the Mormons or say, ooh, what idiots. No, none of that. They're not idiots. They're actually, they're, they're as intelligent as we are. The problem is they have an investment in a so-called testimony that I honestly don't think they know what they're talking about anymore because they reject Joseph Smith and Wilford Woodruff and Parley Pratt's and Orson Pratt's and Oliver Cowdery's testimonies, but they claim to get their testimony by the warming in the bosom and seeing the Joseph Smith's face change and the light come down and enlighten him and all that. Well, that's the same thing today's Mormon leaders are telling the members on how to get a testimony. So if it didn't work in Joseph Smith's day, it damn sure can't possibly be working today. Where am I wrong in all of that? <laughs> you see? Fun stuff. Fun stuff. Very interesting. A uh, lot of fun to have so many Thanks, you guys. Thanks for being here. Come back next week. I'll, I'll uh, be, oh, 42 likes. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you for the donations. Please feel free to, you know, a dollar here, five dollars there, five dollars here and there, whatever. Uh, it really does help. I promise I will not waste it on tithing. I will, I will buy more of these wonderful things behind me so that I can turn around and you can also benefit because we are all rising together in our knowledge. And interestingly enough, I believe we are also all going to be able to rise if we haven't started already in our actual own personal spirituality. And yeah, I know, but that's kind of fun to think about. That's, that's cool. I like that. I do. I, for myself, I like that. So anyway, that is what it's all about. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to spend the time studying this stuff and sharing it with you guys. Absolutely. Mike Langley, you bet. You're more than welcome. Absolutely. You're more than welcome. I will be doing a lot more. Vega Dog, good to see you, my friend. Tom Miller, thank you for showing up. Trevor, appreciate you. Streets of Tartarus, excellent. Good to see Shalema. Thank you for showing up. Tom Miller, good to see you. Chris Murphy, I can't acknowledge y'all. Dan Vogel of Mosia. Uh, Chris Murphy, uh, Mike Weist, very good to see you. Tom Miller, Dean Schwank, and Patty Cake. <laughs> Patty Cake, I love seeing you here. Thank you for showing Streets of Target. Yeah, I mentioned you, Tom Miller. Okay, so you guys, I appreciate you hanging on for so long. It's uh, about two and a half hours. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, the material was extensive, but what I want you to come away from this is we have reasons, good reasons, because they're based on evidence. Yeah, baby. That's how it goes. So, all right, you guys, I will see you all next week at the same time and the same. Oh, thank you, Vega Dog. Thank you. You're awesome, dude. I'm not kidding. Appreciate that. You're good. Okay, Doug, Vincent. Yep. Huff Daddy. Yes, I have a smoking gun. So, we have the smoking gun, man. <laughs> You know what I mean? I, that, that feels good. That feels good. 
You guys feel good, man. You're awesome. You're a wonderful audience. I will see you next time. I got to quit saying goodbye for so long and so much. I said goodbye. I got to go. I'd love to spend all night with you. Ryan Larson, thank you for sticking up with my obfuscation and, and all that jazz. We will be starting to get together. I want to hear from you a little bit more. I want to get talking with you a little more. I want to make clear that I'm understanding you correctly and you're understanding me correctly because I do believe you have a lot to contribute. You are a very intelligent person and I appreciate you showing up. I do. I do. All right. I will see you guys later. I'm going to end the stream now. I apologize. I love y'all, but I got to go. See you next week. Thanks for showing up. You're awesome. Don't argue with me. I'm not in the mood. All right. Bye. See ya.